Canby New Life Foursquare Church welcomes you. We're located at 2350 Southeast Territorial Road, just off Highway 99E. We hope the following message will be a blessing to you. Thank you, Pastor Spencer. And uh, I can honestly say I've never been introdu- introduced that way before. Uh, how do y'all? I lived in Oklahoma for seven years, so I feel like every once in a while I can say y'all. and uh, Or sometimes I'll, I'll say something with a little bit of a drawl, and my, my kids will look at me and sort of like, what's wrong with you? And I say, sorry, my Oklahoma is showing. So, but uh, good morning, and it's good to see everyone. What a privilege it is for, for me. I count this a privilege to be able to speak with really family and friends. So this is uh, an incredible opportunity for all of us, really, to come and to submit ourselves to the Lord. That's one of the things that's important about the church, is to be reminded of what we believe, but it's also important for us the act of coming together and submitting ourselves collectively to the Lord and saying, here we are, God, we're, we're your people. Would you speak to us? Would you show up in this place? Interestingly enough, the word church, the Greek word for church, ekklesia, originally meant the coming together of God's people. And then eventually it became known as God's people who had come together to assemble. And then after that, the place where they assembled became called church. We have to remember there's something important as the church of Christ for us to come together. The coming together of God's people is the primary sense of the church. And then when we come together, we are the church. This building is a church, but we are the church. We are the body of Christ. Amen? I have to make a shameless plug about CBC real quick. Um, yes, we're starting up here. Convocation is actually a worship service, and we want to invite anyone who wants to come at 8 o'clock. We're going to meet right out here in the lobby. We're going to worship the Lord and bring in the, the new semester right, and we're going to just worship the Lord and hear Scripture and hear a word from Pastor Ron. And then student orientation immediately is going to follow right at 9 o'clock, we're going to go right over to the building. If anybody is still thinking about enrolling, it's not too late. Uh, classes begin September 2nd. We have a couple evening classes as well. I'm teaching a Wednesday night class entitled Jesus and His Message, Embracing the Gospel of the Kingdom. Many believers don't realize that the primary message of Jesus himself was the kingdom of God. That's the very thing that the prophets spoke about and foretold is the coming of the kingdom of God. And Jesus spent his life in ministry talking about the kingdom of God. And the apostles in the early church maintained the message talking about the kingdom of God which has come and the kingdom of God which is yet to come. And so we're going to unpack that. We moved that class to Wednesday nights from Thursday so that Perhaps those who need child care can take advantage of that and either audit or take the class for credit. We also have a Tuesday night class taught by Ben Clifton entitled Meaning and Morality. And we're in precarious times now. We're in our culture. There's much that's shifting in terms of trying to, to find out what's moral, what's acceptable, what is the good life. And so Uh, Ben Clifton has put together an awesome class to talk about how do we determine what the meaning of life really is. And as believers, 
when we go to Scripture to look at many of the controversial issues facing us in this day, how do we understand what God has to say about that in his word? And then how do we formulate a, a godly response to those that are in our sphere of influence? So those are the evening classes. And then lastly, November 13th is our major fundraiser of the year. It is a benefit dessert that's going to be hosted right here. That's a Friday, November 13th. Please save the date. Please consider that an opportunity to come and to hear what God has done in our college, what he is doing. Get some dessert. There will be some entertainment. I believe tickets are going to be around $25 each, but that's really just a fundraiser for us. So please uh, consider that. Pray about that. We would love to have you there. Let's go ahead and uh, pray and invite the Spirit to speak to us this morning. Heavenly Father, we come, many of us come in different, uh, with different emotions that are swirling around our lives. Many of us are, are grieving the loss of loved ones. Many of us are celebrating new life as uh, those have been brought into this world Folks we know are getting married. Some of our friends are struggling in their marriages. God, we, we are people that are affected by those things around us. But this morning, as we come to hear you, we, we're coming not to hear a message and sing songs, but really we need to come to encounter you. God, help us to encounter you this morning. Help us somehow by your spirit to unlock in our hearts that part of us that says yes to you. That part in us that needs to be affected by your presence deeply within us to transform our hearts and our motives and our desires. Lord, this morning we want to say yes to you. We confess that God, apart from you, we are nothing, we have nothing, we can do nothing. But, Lord, in you, there's nothing we cannot do that you call us to, that we truly are more than conquerors in you. We confess that, Lord, we can't figure everything out in our own strength, in our own power. We need to look to you and your word as the supreme guide in this life for us to live by. So would you speak to us? We give you permission to move. Would you come and have your way? Be glorified, we pray. And all of us said, amen. In the past few weeks, we've been studying this book called the Book of James. And it's an interesting book in the New Testament because like the book of Hebrews and like 2nd and 3rd John, it's actually not a designed from the beginning to be a letter, but it was a collection of homilies or sermons that were compiled and put together and then structured and sent out to different congregations. See, our New Testament has different types of literature. We have gospels, we have the, a history, a historiography called Acts, and we have letters that are sent to people and to uh, congregations. We have something called an apocalypse which is the book of Revelation. But we also have these books that are a collection of homilies, the earliest sermons in uh, recorded history, really, for the church. And the book of James is interesting because James, as, as we know, was the half-brother of Jesus. 
himself. He was, according to, uh, to Paul and to Luke, he was a skeptic. He didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah until he had died and was raised to life again. And then he was like, whoa, my brother's not crazy. <laughs> He's the son of God. And James becomes one that is sold out to God after this, and he, he becomes a leader, a prominent leader in the early church. In fact, the, the church in Jerusalem, it said, was pastored by James. And so James is a pastor, and he becomes a pastor's pastor, <laughs> one who is known for encouraging and exhorting his congregation. And so when we look at the book of James, we have to keep a few things in mind that the context of the early church in which he's writing is one of extreme persecution, trial, oppression. Many, many believers have already given their lives for the simple fact that they have received Christ as Lord and they proclaimed the Lordship of Christ. They've lost their lives. Many of these folks lost businesses were ostracized from their their families. They were cut off. They were disconnected. So literally, the family of God was all that they had. Most of the early church was very poor, extremely poor. And so what we have here is a pastor who's writing to congregations and believers through a wide geographical area. In fact, the beginning of James says, James to the dispersed churches in Asia Minor. He's saying, these churches, these congregations have left. And in fact, in all probability, they actually were dispersed because of persecution. They were scattered to Egypt and Syria, to the east, across the Jordan River, seeking refuge, fleeing for their lives. And yet this letter is sent out to encourage those that he knows are being persecuted. Also, the book is noted for a couple other things. The fact that James, his, his use of language is very, uh, very black and white. He's very pointed. At times, he says things that even seem a little harsh to our ears in a, our 21st century American Western ears. We, we go, wow, chill out, man. Chill out, James. Why are you saying that to believers? It's a little harsh, don't you think? It it, it hits us because there's a forcefulness behind what he's saying. But in his context, it was perfectly appropriate. And they would have taken it well. Another thing is that James is noted for having a real Jewish or Hebraic outlook on life and God and, and how to live. And so these very Jewish themes come through as well. In fact, James, more than any other writer uh, in in the letters or homilies other than Hebrews, is pulling from Old Testament Hebraic understanding of how to live and serve God in the here and now. And James actually pulls a lot from Jesus' own material in the Sermon on the Mount. We see a lot of these themes that recur. We call these intertextual echoes. They're echoes in the text that harken back to other texts that the audience would be familiar with. And so James is looking 
to encourage believers by appealing back, not directly quoting Jesus, but alluding back to the the teachings of Jesus that they already know as a source of encouragement and comfort. These past few weeks, Pastor Ron shared a few sermons. Uh, Pastor Spencer shared one, and Pastor James shared one. We saw that that James has exhortation after exhortation after exhortation to these believers. And it really has to do with our way of life. He says we're to embrace lives of wisdom. Again, a prominent Jewish theme. The book of Proverbs. In fact, we have a whole section of the Old Testament called Wisdom Literature. Why? Because the Jews were, they valued wisdom. How do we live godly lives in the practical here and now of life? And so James says, if anyone lacks wisdom, he should do what? Pray. He should ask God for wisdom because God will grant the wisdom. If you go to him, he's more than willing to speak to you. So ask for wisdom so that you can know what is right and good and true. And then we also see that James encourages the believers to be slow to speak, quick to listen, slow to become angry because he knows the value, the wisdom in listening before speaking. And that that is oftentimes, if you can hear correctly, then you're more prone to actually respond, not react. You know, there's a big difference between responding and reacting. But we need to have a quick ear to listen before we can respond. And in many ways, that can actually cut off the possibility of anger if we just humble ourselves with our ears We saw in the second chapter that he gave this thing called the law of love, loving your neighbor as yourself. Again, this goes back to the teaching of Jesus. And love is not just having affection for someone or having a sentiment or warm fuzzies within your heart about them. No, love always had a moral dimension to it. Loving them meant treating them the way they ought to be treated. And it also had a dimension that was relational. You're giving yourself to them in the appropriate way. And so James is saying we need to be people of love and not just reduce love down to emotions or affection, but realize there's a moral dimension. In fact, one of our phrases, tough love, is accurate because it's a way that we relate to people at times even when it means sharing something with them that is hard for them to hear. Why? Because it's a way that we can actually lovingly share the truth in a way that is always given in their best interest. It's with their best interests in mind. Then James says that we're to have faith and live out faith. And faith is not just, again, reduced to a set of beliefs, but faith is to be demonstrated. It's to be lived out. It's to be practically implemented in our everyday life. He says we're to guard our tongue. We're to live peaceably with those around us. And think about this. This peaceably living is shalom living. This is a Hebrew understanding. Anybody heard the word shalom? Okay, most everyone maybe. But shalom meant not just the absence of war, but the presence of God's completeness in our midst. It has to do with a wholeness or things that are appropriately lived out and experienced in our lives. That's the kind of life we're to live. And, of course, uh, we're to, to walk in humility. 
So we come to a text today which is, starts off a little, a little uh, shocking to many of us. James chapter 5, verses 1 through 12 is our text this morning. Before I get into this, I, I have to look at a couple matters of context. There's this principle in biblical interpretation called the law of the text. Everybody say the law of the text. And it goes like this, that a text without a context is simply a pretext for whatever you want it to mean. I'll say that again. A text without a context is simply a pretext for whatever you want it to mean. So when we come to Scripture, we don't want to read into the text something that's not there. We want to take out of it what God put in, right, through his servants, because there's an objective truth that God's wanting to teach us there. And so as we do that, we have to keep in mind this this context. So we really need to do this in the book of James because he's got different themes, but we have to continually remind ourselves of the context in which he's speaking. One of the things that uh, we know is that James has heard story and story and story of his brothers and sisters in Christ who have been persecuted and they're being mistreated by employers. Just like probably most of history, there have been uh, haves and have-nots, especially when it comes down to financial goods. And you had, especially for most of human history, there hasn't been such a, a prominent thing as a middle class. But really, there have been really wealthy and those everyone else. <laughs> right? Degrees of poverty almost. And this is serious. When you look at most of recorded human history, we'll see that they're usually the, the really wealthy and then everyone else. And so in James's time, first century ancient Near East, this is true all over the land. You had the uber wealthy and you had the poor and degrees of poverty. Truth be known around the world today, the same way. There's not a middle class in most countries around the world. That's a phenomenon we experience in the West, and we are very, very blessed in America with having a middle class. Many of us don't even consider ourselves wealthy, but in some respects, comparatively around the world, we are. We are so lavishly blessed. In the ancient Near East, there was this concept called limited good or limited goods, the concept of limited goods. It was essentially a prevailing conviction that most people had that there was a set amount of wealth in the world. And so if your neighbor was getting a a raise, so to speak, or getting more money, that meant somebody else in the community was getting less because there was a fixed amount of money and goods. So when the wealthy were getting more wealthy, that meant the everyone else was was losing. And oftentimes that was the case, but they didn't realize altogether that there could be increased growth and prosperity. And so James knows this, and he knows that most of these believers that he's writing to are impoverished, they're working twice as hard, and seem to be getting less and less and less. That the view of 
limited goods was affecting the congregation. In addition to that, for us to understand really this passage, we have to understand um, that there are many different ways that people can communicate certain things in verbal speech, but also in written speech. We use expressions that are figurative, like it's raining cats and dogs, right? You translate that literally into another language, and people are like, what? There were cats and dogs? No. So it's a figure of speech, right? It's an idiom. And so there are many different literary devices and figures of speech, but one of them that's important for us to understand is one called an apostrophe. We hear apostrophe, and we think of what? A grammatical mark in the English language can show possession, right? But the figure of speech apostrophe was used in certain contexts. When you would actually give direct address to someone who's not there for the benefit of those who are, right? If I said, basically, oh, politicians, hear the voices of your people, Well, unless there are politicians here, you wouldn't understand the point I'm making. Especially if you knew that there were no politicians in the room, and I did that. It's a a figure of speech right there. But there's an importance to what's being said to those that are present. And so now we're going to dive into this text because it's important for us to see that he starts off chapter 5 with an apostrophe. And so he says this. He says, Come now, you rich... Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Whoa. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. Anybody in here going, wow, such strong language. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Important comment, last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous one. He does not resist you. See, again, this is important because what James is doing here is he's leveling this very very serious prophetic judgment on the wealthy wicked who are suppressing them. And in this, there's a sense of Comfort, I guess you could say, that is being brought that God is aware of every, every little thing that is done to God's people. And we can't think that God is passive or somehow ambivalent to the persecution that comes against God's people. He says, come now you rich. This is, in the Greek, age nun hoi ptochoi. This is literally the indicator to the audience that he's going into this apostrophe. He's saying, listen up. This is what God is saying to those not present, but there is a judgment here. 
he is pronouncing. There is a way of life that brings life, and there's a way of life that brings death. And we need to realize the seriousness of this. Back in chapter 2, James said this, though, and this helps us to see a little bit better the context. He says, listen, my beloved brothers, which is important because he says brothers, 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 brothers all through here. And it's not just brothers. It's brothers and sisters in Christ. Adelphoi is inclusive here of all the believers. He says, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom? which he has promised to those who love him? That's a rhetorical question. So the answer is yes. But you have dishonored the poor. Are not the rich ones the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? Again, the answer is yes. The setting of these Brothers and sisters in Christ, 2,000 years ago, they're at the hands of persecution. The wealthy, the uber-wealthy that are behaving wickedly are suppressing these individuals. Two things to, to point out in this text in James 2. Rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom. Faith, for whatever reason in our day and age, Many people think that the biblical understanding of faith is belief without evidence or belief holding to a belief despite the lack of evidence. And that is not the primary understanding of faith in the Bible. Pistis in the Greek is a matter of trust. It's a a relational trust. It's a trust that you have in the midst of community. In fact, when we put our faith in God, it's not abstract faith, belief in God. It's a relational trust in the person of God. So yes, there are beliefs. Yes, there's a dimension of knowledge. Yes, there's an aspect of confidence we have. But there's a primary understanding of trusting God. In fact, I can put my trust in you because I, I know some of you relationally. And I can say, yes, I have faith that you're going to do this, that, and the other. Because I know you. Because I know of the integrity and the, the, the degree that, I, that you're a reliable authority that I can trust in. That's, what, that's more of a picture of what biblical faith is. Trusting our God. Trusting him not just with our thoughts, but with our heart and with our thoughts This other expression, heirs of the kingdom. The word kingdom, we tend to think of a place, right? The magic kingdom, Disneyland, or the United Kingdom, across the the seas. No, these are not just places that he's talking about, but the kingdom really has much to do with God's rule and reign in our lives. And so let's come back to this where he says, Are not the poor in the world, the poor believers in the world, to be rich in trust of their God and heirs of the fact that even though they're poor, they can have God's rule and reign unleashed in their life. Yes, that's exactly what James is getting at. So these folks that are suppressing the believers, they're, they're accumulating wealth. They're, they're living for the now. And this harkens back to the teaching of Jesus when he says, those who are, are amassing treasures in this life, They're getting their reward now. They're getting 
their pleasure now. But as believers, we're to store up treasures where? In heaven. That we're living not for today. We're living for eternity, in light of eternity. And this, this is not our home. This is a, this is a passing ground. We're, we're, this is like a rest stop on the highway of eternity. It's just a brief period of time. This is not our home. Heaven is our home. And heaven is not just this picture of the sweet by and by in the sky when I die. There's a new heavens and a new earth that will be established. And we, we as the people of God will be reunited, given glorified bodies. And there will be no sin and no pain and no hardship. And we will be together and live even better than Adam and, Adam and Eve did in the garden. Because we'll have something to look back on and know, man, that was really bad. But we overcame by the blood of the Lamb. And it's so much better to have the presence of God with no sin or wickedness or pain or sorrow or misery. But things truly are shalom as they ought to be. Friends, that's what James is reminding the congregants of. We're not living for now. Hold on. One New Testament scholar, Miriam Kamel, she says that uh, what these wealthy wicked are doing is they're, quote, usurping the role of God as judge. Because of their status, their wealth, their position, all that they have, they feel that they have the right to condemn whomever they desire. And our our brothers and sisters that were going through this, James is saying, listen, these folks are trying to play God as judge, take you to court and take all that you have. Because, by the way, the ancient courts were more often than not rigged in favor of the wealthy. And so they literally could do nothing. There was no equal rights in the law. You know, back then it was the literally the haves and the have-nots. And so these landowners would take these people and say, you don't like the wages I'm paying for you? Let's go to court. And they're going, well, what good would that do? Let's go to court, and then you take more of what I have, and I have very little? That's the kind of injustice that was going on here. And so we see James is saying, number one, remember Judgment Day. This pronouncement that's leveled against the the wealthy wicked is one that is reminding the people of God that there is a day that is coming where we will all stand before the Almighty. And we will all give an account. Hebrews 9.27 says that we're destined to die once and after that to be judged. Matthew 25, Jesus said... When the Son of Man, that's Jesus, comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, that is the people groups, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. When you continue to read this chapter, it gets very sobering. Because there's both uh, an admonition to the, the body of believers how we're to live our lives. 
because we'll all face the judgment. The Apostle Paul says this in Romans 14, But you, why do you judge your brother? Or you again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, As I live, says Yahweh the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall give praise to God. So then each one of us will give an account of himself to God. Isn't that a sobering thought? How many of us know of things in our lives that we've done that we're ashamed of, that we can't shake the thoughts of those things? The enemy tries to use that and bring it up against us to bring us into condemnation and speak lies into us. We've all done things that we're not proud of. We will all give an account to God, but thanks be to God that there is grace and mercy because of the shed blood of his son, Jesus, that we can be seen as clean and pure and forgiven and righteous because of the righteousness of God in Christ that is applied to us. Can I get an amen? amen. That's, that, that should make us happy. <laughs> that should make us joy-filled. That should be something we wake up in the morning and say, thank you, God, for your mercy. Your mercies are new every morning. Lord, I come to you and thank you personally that I am saved. I am redeemed because I have faith in your son and help me to trust you today lord help me to live out this life you want to live through me by being led by your spirit i just invite you into my life thank you for your saving grace that we're saved by grace through faith in the son of god in what he has done what he is doing and then we hang on the promises of what he is yet to do amen we see here that james is encouraging these brothers and sisters Remember, if we can't get justice in this life, justice is coming in the next. We are not to usurp the role of God as judge, but we're to know that God is a just judge. He sees every single deed, has and will. He knows all. And he is all wise. And he is all good. And he always always says what is true and right. And because of that, there is a comfort we can know in this life that if we don't get the justice we're seeking, God knows, and he will mete out judgment and justice in the future. We are not to grab the reins and take control to try to get our own justice for us in the now. Apart from God... But trusting that even if we don't get that, we can relinquish it to the just judge who will bring justice. So we, by extension, can know that a judgment day is coming and we can remember that we're not the judge. Secondly, I think what James is saying here is practice proactive patience. Practice proactive patience. Say that ten times fast, right? I almost entitled this point, Patience, Patience, Patience. Because we read here in in verse 7, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until what? The coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it? Until it receives the early and late rains, you also be patient. 
Notice he says patience three times in just a couple sentences. The primary message really of this text is really revolving about how we live now. I've entitled this message, The Waiting Game. Because in two, in, in, in one respect, the Bible is sort of a tale of two comings. It's a tale of the first coming of the Messiah. Because you see, even in Genesis chapter 3, there's this thing called the Proto-Euangelion. It's the first mention of the gospel when God is judging Adam and Eve and the serpent. And God says he will send a deliverer. He will send a Messiah to restore what had been lost. And all through that, the rest of the Old Testament, what we see is the stage being set for the coming of Messiah. That first coming, we call the Advent. Around Christmas, we celebrate Advent. It's just the first coming of Christ. But there's another coming. Jesus says, I go to prepare a place for you. And then he says, I'm coming back again for the bride. And so that's where we're at right now is we're in between the first coming and the second coming. And this is one long waiting game for us. So all believers everywhere from the time of Christ till today and until Jesus comes back again, we're waiting, waiting, waiting. Some of us don't even think about that. But in the early church, this was a central, central point. The day of the Lord, a day of judgment, will come. But the coming of the Lord, the parousia, the arrival, the return of our King The God-man, Jesus, Messiah, will come. And at this coming of the Lord, he will set everything to rights. Hallelujah. James qualifies the kind of patience. We're not to to just have a passive patience. You know, that, that patience where we're just holding on and doing nothing. Just come, come, Lord, come. Come, Jesus. But we're doing nothing in the meantime. That's more of a passive patience. We're to know that uh, there's a way that this patience is to be set about and practiced. In verse 8, he says, "Be, be patient, establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remained, what? Steadfast. You've heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you've seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. One of the reasons... We believe that that Jesus has taken a long time from our perspective to return is because he wants, he's long-suffering. He wants all who would come to him to come to him and is orchestrating and setting about utilizing the free will of people to get the gospel out to people who would want to have relationship with God the Father through the Son, by the Spirit, and he is long suffering and waiting to get as many who would come to come. We look at this passage, 
that I just read, and we see that we're not, we're not to gripe and grumble because that does what? That doesn't create any positive outcome in our lives. The type of patience is to give words of encouragement and life and good. We see in this text that the judge is standing at the door. There's a, a posture we're to take. I remember my mom when I was growing up. She sometimes would look out the window, and I'm like, Mom, what are you doing? She's like, is today the day? Today the day for what? Is today the day he's coming back? The more I think about it, the Lord says we're to expect his soon return. As four square, that's one of our four squares. (laughs) The soon coming king. As the people of God, in light of eternity, it's soon. But we're to live lives expecting the coming of the Lord and live accordingly knowing that we only have so many days and minutes left and living lives in anticipation of the coming of the Lord, his soon return. So proactive patience is really not a passive patience. We're not to do nothing as the people of God and and pull away from wherever we're living and hunker down and just hold on till the end without doing any good to those around us. No, we're to be proactive in our patience. We're to practice patience in a way that extends the hope of the message of the cross to those in our world. But also, proactive patience is not reactive patience. There's no revolution we're to, to, to do, and a revolt that we're to do in, in crushing those oppressors around us and grab the sword. Jesus says, no, don't do that. Live lives of integrity. Live lives of peace and life. So we're not to spur revolt. He says, remember the prophets. The prophets, remember, they didn't ever lead a revolt. They spoke the truth of the word of God, even though it fell on deaf ears most of the time. But they weren't snarky or mean or name-calling for the purpose of being mean. They were speaking the truth of the word of God to those around them in love. Many of them were killed for doing that. They didn't do nothing, but they also didn't rely on the warfare of man. They stuck to the truth. They anchored themselves in the word of God. They spoke up when they needed to speak, but they also lived lives that exemplified the message they were sharing. Finally, James, in verse 12, he says, Above all, brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. What he's getting at here is that we're to maintain verbal integrity. Everything in life matters. Everything we do in life matters, including our speech. What we say, what we rehearse, the things that we say in the heat of the moment. No, we we would do well to be people that respond, not react. We're not given license to say whatever we want, whenever we want, but we are to be thoughtful, spirit-led, humble, and loving to speak the truth and to speak the truth in love. Amen? We need to be sure that we have a bridle on our tongue, that we're people of our word. I remember um, my dad, he... He was in the Air Force, and he eventually started his own 
machine shop business. So he's blue-collar worker, works 70 hours a week, and hard worker. And I remember looking up, and, and uh, he said, we're to be people of our word. Your word is your bond. What you say is who you are. Sound familiar? Many of us heard that growing up. But today, there's so much bickering and fighting and people reneging on their word. We as the people of God should be people when our, uh, this, that our yes is our yes and our no is our no. We don't make promises we can't keep. We know we don't we need to bring God into a, an occasion so that when we don't do what we say we're going to do, God looks bad. <laughs> and we look bad. We should live lives of humility, simplicity, having verbal integrity. I'm going to do something I've never done before. I'm going to read a poem to end. When I was in Bible college, my homiletics teacher said, for decades and decades and decades, ministers are known for giving three points in a poem. Don't ever be that one that gives three points in a poem. And today, I'm, I'm that guy. Yeah. But my whole 20 years in ministry, I, I've never preached three points in a poem until tonight. And I think it's going to be okay. Is it okay? Yeah. All right. Would you just listen to this? It's entitled, When I Became a Christian. When I became a Christian, I said, Lord, now fill me in. Tell me what I'll suffer in this world of shame and sin. He said, your body may be killed and left to rot and stink. Do you still want to follow me? I said, amen, I think. I think amen. Amen, I think. I think I say amen, but I'm not completely sure, Lord. Can you just run through that again? You say my body may be killed and left to rot and stink? Well, yes, that sounds terrific, Lord. I say amen, I think. But, Lord, there must be other ways to follow you, I said. I really would prefer to end up dying in my bed. Well, yes, he said, you could put up with the sneers and scorn and spit. Do you still want to follow me? I said, amen, a bit. A bit, amen. Amen, a bit. A bit, I say, amen. I'm not entirely sure. Can we just run through that again? You say I could put up with sneers and also scorn and spit. Well, yes, I've made up my mind, and I say, amen. A bit. Well, I sat back and thought a while, then I tried a different ploy. Now, Lord, I said, the good book says that Christians live with joy. That's true, he said. You'll need the joy to bear the pain and sorrow. So do you still want to follow me? I said, amen, Lord. Tomorrow. Tomorrow, Lord, I'll say it then. That's when I'll say amen. I need to get it clear. Can I just run through that again? You say that I'll need the joy to bear the pain and sorrow. Well, yes, I think I've got it straight now, Lord. I'll say amen tomorrow. He said, Lord, I'm not asking you. He said, look, I'm not asking you to spend an hour with me, a quick salvation sandwich and a cup of sanctity. (laughs) The cost is you, not half of you, but every single bit. 
Now tell me, will you follow me? I said, amen. I quit. I'm very sorry, Lord. I said, I'd like to follow you, but I don't think religion is a very manly thing to do. He said, forget religion then. Think about my son and tell me if you're man enough to do what he has done. Are you man enough to see the need and man enough to go? Are you man enough to care for those whom no one wants to know? Are you man enough to say the thing that people hate to hear? To battle through Gethsemane and loneliness and fear? And listen, are you man enough to stand it at the end? The moment of betrayal by the kisses of a friend? And are you man enough to hold your tongue? Man enough to cry when nails break your body? Are you man enough to die? Are you man enough to take the pain and wear it like a crown? Man enough to love the world and turn it upside down? Are you man enough to follow me? I ask you once again. I said, oh, Lord, I'm so frightened. But I also say, amen. 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 I said, oh, Lord, I'm so frightened. But I also say, amen. Let's pray. Lord, as we leave this place, may we too be people that no matter what comes in this life, we would say to you, amen. Be it so unto us. May we live lives that exemplify the grace and kindness of our Lord. May we be people that know that you are just and good, that we would live lives that remember the judgment day, that even in our own lives we live accordingly, and we leave the justice-making to your hands, not our own. And in the meantime, may we practice proactive patience and neither be passive and do nothing or reactive and focus on the wrong thing. May we be people that live lives of integrity, but also proclaim the message of hope to those around us, that Jesus is Lord of every dimension of our life. And may we be people that maintain verbal integrity, where our yes is our yes, and our no is our no, that people would know we are believers because we're people of integrity. Even though this life is challenging, may we be people that hold on and say amen to you. You can contact the church office Tuesday through Thursday from 9 to 5 and Fridays from 9 to 3 at 503-266-4444. Please visit us on the web anytime at canbefoursquare.com. Pastor Ron and others on New Life staff, along with occasional guest speakers, trust that the Holy Spirit will use the message to teach you, encourage you, and give you hope.